Oh God certainly is worthy of worship. Well, let's bow our heads and uh, pray together, just committing this message to you, our time uh, in this particular passage from Hebrews. Dear Lord, thank you for a time that we can gather like this, as Eugene has already prayed, and just coming before you, again asking that you would open our hearts, continue, Lord, to transform our minds, help us to know something of the a great work of your spirit in us and lord even through us as we go from this place today i pray that you would help me in uh, that which i say help me to speak simply but clearly and lord to know something of the unction the power of your spirit at work um, uh, in in me and through me as well in jesus name amen so Hebrews chapter 13, and like us to consider just two verses today, and uh, not wanting to rush through these verses, I, I really believe that there is much for us to, to gain uh, from this. And the author here writing to these Hebrews, getting to the end of the letter, he says, Pray for us, uh, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, uh, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you uh, more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored uh, to you the sooner. So just so far, uh, the reading of God's Word. I thought I'd begin and introduce this message today to try and get us thinking a little bit about war. Uh, what is it like to be involved in a war? Imagine being in a country like Syria, Afghanistan, uh, the difficulty of fighting wars. We often see, uh, certainly I have seen battles fought on television uh, in the movies, and particularly from the old days, uh, where you see two armies uh, advancing toward each other. And immediately the thinking in my mind is that those battles surely must represent for, for those who are on the front row charging soldiers, uh, one group to another, Guaranteed slaughter. How do you survive that? It's, it's guaranteed death. Uh, warfare in those days was certainly, I would describe it as a suicide mission. Now King David understood that. I thought of a biblical example. Remember when he asked for Uriah, the Hittite, to be sent, and the Bible tells us to the front lines where the battle was the fiercest. And he knew it would be a definite death sentence for Bathsheba's husband. But again, just taking it even further, I wondered about fighting, uh, being a soldier, fighting in the First World War. Imagine, imagine being a soldier in the trenches. It's in Europe. Four years, 1914 to 1918, uh, long days of summer, short, cold days of winter, sometimes freezing cold, limited rations of food. And I discovered just researching what it was like in those trenches, and I understood that those soldiers lived with rats and lice. That was, and not for a week, not for a month, but for years on end, fighting a war, uh, negotiating uh, bombs being dropped on them, avoiding poisonous gas assaults, fighting a war, was most certainly in the harshest of conditions. So life in the trenches was brutal. Well, fighting war in the trenches reminded me of a certain person in our church that will remain anonymous. 
this person is a faithful prayer warrior, attends many prayer meetings. And I, for many years, uh, sat in prayer meetings with this person, this brother, and I've got to know the way that he expresses himself to God. One of his most frequent requests to God is for the pastors. And this is the way he prays. He often identifies the pastors, the leaders of the church, as those on the front line, those fighting in the trenches. So he understands the seriousness, the, the difficulty, the, the harsh uh, uh, context and situation that it is. And, and I believe that this brother understands what the author of, of Hebrews in this particular context is urging his readers to do for the leaders. Pray for us. Uh, previously, in the last few verses, we were looking just at the local church as uh, members were urged to uh, fulfill their duty toward leaders. But now this is broader. This is not just leaders in the local church, although they're included, but other leaders, perhaps even denominational leaders, uh, leaders of organizations, leaders involved in evangelism and, and missions. So pray for us. Pray for us. This, in this instance, we don't know who the author was. Maybe it was Paul but certainly would have been one of those apostles, one of those men in the inner circle that had worked and walked with Jesus. Pray for us. Pray for us. And now as he comes to the end of the letter, having expounded on, on the superior ministry of Jesus, uh, clarifying the true nature of saving faith, and, 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 and along the way even issuing stern warnings, you, you may well fall behind, you may well uh, slip and, and backslide. And, and then we got to verse, at least chapter 13, where he was closing off for the number of duties that believers have toward God and man. And he understands in giving all of that, giving so much detail, so much width, that he along with all spiritual leaders, stand in need of ongoing spiritual help. And so that's the, that's the message this morning. I need help is the title of the message. Though I'm speaking of myself, but I'm speaking on behalf of other elders and deacons and ministry leaders and denominational workers. And so my first point this morning, warriors in the trenches need your help. One of his visits to the United States of America, Charles Spurgeon, I think you all know who he was, I hope you do, a well-known Baptist preacher in London, United Kingdom, used greatly of God, reaching literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. Well, an American pastor encountered him on this visit, and, and this is what he said. I've long wished to see you, Mr. Spurgeon, and put one or two simple questions to you. In our country, there are many opinions as to the secret of your great influence. Would you be good enough to give me your point of view? After a moment's pause, Spurgeon replied, My people pray for me. Was it? My people pray for me. We see the same thing happening in the fledgling church in the book of Acts. Regularly praying for their leaders. The leaders regularly asking for prayer. I'll give you some examples. The apostle Peter. Desperate time of need for him. Uh, arrested and placed in prison because of preaching the gospel. 
And we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We see the same with the Apostle Paul. Now, he was a capable person in every right, talented, capable. And yet, this bold servant of God unashamedly, repeatedly confessed his need for help, regularly asking the church to pray for him, pray for those with him. Let me give you again some examples. 2 Corinthians 1.11, you also must help us by prayer. And then he gives a reason. 1 Thessalonians 5.25, brothers, pray for us. There's a sense of urgency. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. Colossians 4 verse 3, at the same time, uh, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. So you, you get the point? These apostles, these men who walked and worked with Jesus, who knew something of the blessing of the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they understood the enormous challenge facing them in ministry. He understood, the Apostle Paul specifically understood the enormous challenge he faced in the discharge of his duties, having to fight an enemy that he could not even see. I mean, it's one thing, uh, a line of soldiers here and a line of soldiers there, and you, you face each other and you fight each other and you either defeat each other or, or def are defeated or you're victorious. But what happens if you don't know where the enemy is? And, and that's what he says. He says to the church at Ephesus, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Well, what does that mean? You can't see the enemy but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Boy, do we need help. We don't even know who the enemy is. We don't even know where the enemy is. He also understood the battle lines were not always clearly demarcated. There were some clandestine traitors working supposedly with them, but actually were against them in the trenches, warning the church at Ephesus, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And so the point is that we need to understand getting to the end of this letter. Gospel ministry is war. That work that God has called us to do is a challenge. Unfriendly fire is inevitable. Being shot in the back by a supposed ally is, is not uncommon. It's dangerous work. It's difficult work. The challenges are many, ranging from spiritual attack from the enemy that we can't see, intermittent fire from within the church, outside of the church, mingled into the challenges of the task. Not only the leaders facing all these difficulties, but the members too. Can you understand the urging in this passage? Pray for us. Pray, and I want to urge members and adherents central. Pray for the leaders. We are not without our failings and faults. We have shortcomings. We have blind spots. We are fallible, uh, struggling sinners ourselves, trying to finish the course, trying to serve the Lord. Pray regularly. Pray broadly for the elders. 
And even I would urge you to pray for the denominational leaders in our country. Those who lead other denominations and churches. Pray for ministry leaders and deacons. The point is that the warriors in the trenches need your help. Now, preaching requires specific points of application. And so, uh, yes, while there's value, and I'm going to mention some, uh, some of the varied and very specific needs that leaders uh, have to face and deal with, the author of Hebrews actually zeroes in only on two issues that are worthy, I believe, of our consideration. But before I get there, pray for unction in preaching. This thing that we do, this is not just a, a talk. This is not just a, a speech. We, we, we need to be praying that, that the Word of God would always come as a hammer and fire. That God's word would, be, would, would go forth in unction, I think is an old word that used to be used. Pray that, that we who preach and, and lead would be relevant in the work we do, whether it be in preaching or counseling or teaching. Wisdom in, in that which we share. A courage in faith. One of the most difficult things in leadership is to go against the flow. And sometimes we're called to go against the flow when the flow is going in the direction against God. I mean, I read of this ruling. This is not in my notes now, but did you read of the Constitutional Court ruling on homosexuality this week? We're in trouble. They've ruled that any talk uh, on homosexual, homosexuality and, and same-sex marriage is tantamount to a hate speech. And if that, if that is not somehow reversed, we're in trouble. You're going to visit me in jail and I'll have to be sending messages. Pray for me. Diligence in hard work. I said to the congregation up at the hill this morning, you don't know what we pastors do. Isn't that true? You see us on a Sunday for an hour, a little bit before, a little bit afterwards. And there's some 700-odd people in the church. And months can go by, and you may not see a pastor other than on a Sunday. And so the challenge that we pastors face and pray for us is to be diligent in, being, in taking initiative and working hard. That's, that's a challenge. It's, it's something we need to be prayed for. Restraint in temptation. We face the temptations of sin. Perseverance under pressure. Having said all of that, that's not the focus. The focus of this message is my second point this morning. Warriors in the trenches need a calibrated compass. I'm going to focus just on two issues, and this is one of them. This is the, the need from verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I battle to get to understand this verse because why is he asking for prayer when they're doing the right thing? Well, eventually I got to understand it. Uh, in other words, he's actually saying, keep praying for us, even though currently, currently we are doing what is right, currently we are acting with integrity and honesty in matters. But there's a very important lesson that we're learning here. That being so, the author knows that godly leadership 
is never a done deal. Do you know what I mean by that? You see, none of us can ever sit back and think and believe that we have arrived now at a particular point in time and assume that all will forever be well. Can't do that. And so the need, the need is to continue to have a clear conscience, a good conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Well, that requires God's help. It requires nothing less than God's keeping and sanctifying work. So if you've missed me so far, let me put that in simple English. A healthy ministry today, or perhaps I should even add there, a healthy leader, spiritual leader today, characterized by integrity and honesty and soundness, does not guarantee a healthy and honest and sound ministry tomorrow. You better pray. There's some present-day examples worth mentioning. Many of our younger people, young adults especially, would know of Joshua Harris. He wrote a book a couple of years ago, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, influencing many, many young people, even in our own church. I remember some discussions uh, from that book. This man, Joshua Harris, is, was a popular, very popular, conservative, evangelical, pastor, preacher, leader, made a U-turn. I don't know when it was, maybe two years ago now. He made a U-turn, denying being a Christian, turned his back on the faith. Tragically, he's now known for kissing the gospel goodbye. A good ministry then, today, is no longer... I wonder if his congregation prayed for him. We're facing challenging times in the evangelical world today. I don't know how much you follow what's happening across the world, but sound sought-after preachers, some of them I've listened to and I've liked to listen to them. Uh, David Platt has been one of my favorites. Uh, J.D. Greer, Francis Chan, Matt Chander. These are names I'm sure that are familiar to you. (laughs) These guys currently are tap dancing. You know what that is? Sort of tap dancing, but they're tap dancing on the edge of a slippery slope of buying into ideologies foreign to sound biblical gospel ministry. I read just this past week that David Platt's church, there's something like 3,000 members that are threatening to leave. They're seeing the fault. Now the question, of course, is will they eventually fall off the bus? Well, I don't know, and I hope not. But I do see, and I hope you see, the need to pray for Christian leaders. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at men today. I, I, I'm pleading for help. Actually pleading for help. Because if these great men can fall and fail, men alive, I don't know job where you and I stand. We need the prayers of God's people. Christian leaders need to be prayed for. We need the help of God. And I want to go a little bit deeper to to show you one of the very specific challenges that that we we all face, but Christian leaders more so, I think, face this. It's the specific need, uh, the, the specific need is to pray for Christian leaders 
to maintain a good conscience. You ever heard of a sermon on conscience before? I never have. So I really had to dig around this week uh, to try and understand the topic. A.W. Pink helps me. And he defines conscience. And I think, let me give you the definition. Conscience is that faculty of the soul which enables us to perceive of conduct in reference to right and wrong. It's that inward principle which decides upon lawfulness or unlawfulness of our desire and deeds. But let me try and take that a little bit further. Make it personal. You and me as, as, a, as human beings have an ethical instinct made in the image of God. That, that's the reason we have an ethical instinct. You have a faculty of moral sensibility. It's informing you. It's impressing you. It's con, uh, conveying you to, to, to the knowledge of right or wrong. It is the business of the conscience to make pronouncements or judgments on each action, whether good or evil. I think my mother, I don't know about your mother's, but my mother used to say, listen to that little voice inside your head. It's your conscience. It's your conscience. Well, to help us understand the need, the need for uh, and the use of a good conscience, I thought it would be helpful for us to think about a compass just the ordinary compass. And uh, most of you probably, I don't know if you have a compass, if you go hiking, uh, these days you can even download a compass on your, telef uh, on your cell phone. But uh, I want us to think about the actual device with a needle that spins around and points in different directions. A compass is a device that shows the cardinal direction used for navigation and geographic orientation. It shows you where north is. Compass is a wonderful tool if you're anybody who gets out into the bush or if you've walked around the desert or if you've got stuck in a forest and you don't know what direction to go in, boy, oh boy, a compass is a great help. It will show you the right direction, the direction you ought to go. If, however, the compass is defective, now you've got a problem. You've got a problem. You've got a compass, and it's pointing somewhere, but it's not pointing north. And so it, it points you in the wrong direction, and if you walk in the wrong direction and you're walking in a forest, you may walk over a cliff and die instead of getting back to home base. My point is, your conscience, and my conscience, is a moral compass. And your moral compass is this inbuilt gift from God to navigate through life. What will you do at work? How will you conduct yourself in your relationships? But like the faulty compass, we too, as people, face the challenges regarding faulty consciences. Consciences are not perfect. We know that fallen man has a defective moral compass. We also speak often of the sinful nature, which is slightly different, but of course everything is integrated. A defective moral compass 
that governs your decision-making and your action and your conduct with regard to right and wrong, if it's defective, it's going to lead you to wrong decisions when it should be right decisions. It is true, and thank God it is true, that the conscience of a believer is awakened. It still is subject to being flawed or faulty, taking us in the wrong direction. And then I thought I'd mention a couple of defects. These are the kind of defects that you ought to be aware of and watch for, uh, of a good conscience, a, a weak conscience, for example. A weak conscience is where there is a lack of light of truth, dominated by ignorance and error. I mean, how do you make decisions regarding all the truth of God if you don't know the truth of God or you've been taught the wrong, on the, if you've been taught error? So no teaching or wrong teaching leads people to blundering on regardless and either leads down pathways of, uh, of legalism or lawlessness. We have an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. A second defect is a doubting conscience. I don't know if you've come across that or you have found that yourself. Sometimes you will find that there's an absence of, of meaningful conviction. It's kind of like a slippery fish. You know, sometimes you catch a fish. I don't know if any of you have caught a fish. And you can't quite hold that fish because it kind of slips all out, uh, out of your hands because it's slippery. And some people are, have slippery consciences. They, 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 they doubt everything. They, there's no conviction that about this or, or, or about that. And, and they're unsure about what is right and what is wrong. And so it, it leaves that person at a place where they become a fence-sitter. Or it could even be that they're choosing... Wrong is right, or right is wrong. Then there's the guilty conscience. Guilty conscience, and Job who challenged us this morning in the communion service, we constantly as Christians ought to be examining our hearts because peace of your conscience will be disturbed when it is unrepented and unconfessed. So that's, that's in the, on the one side. On the other side, it could be that there is just a lack of assurance. You haven't quite understood and, and, and come to the place where you see the wonderful work of, of the blood of Jesus covering your sin. And there's this constant, am I forgiven, am I not forgiven, and, and this guilty conscience plagues you. Now here's the one that I want to really zero in on for us as leaders. A hardened or seared conscience. What is that? It's a conscience where the Word of God has been neglected, where there's a rebellion to God and His Word, and that's persisted. You know, it's like you get a callus on your finger. Um, I'm just thinking of an example. If you play squash, I remember when I was a squash player, I used to have calluses on all my fingers from holding that grip repeatedly because it, it wears and it wears and you get a callus. Conscience is like that. A constant repeated digging of one's heels in against the Word of God, neglecting the Word of God, rebelling against the Word of God, the conscience becomes seared, hardened, desensitized. In fact, uh, one develops what is called a calloused and desensitized moral compass, going in the wrong direction. You say, hang on a minute, is that, is that in the Bible? Yes, it is. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, 
Joshua Harris, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Being led astray by people claiming to be something that they're not something, it's the old uh, verse that we repeat so often. The devil parading as an angel of light. Now way back in my early years of working, I learned something I thought that could demonstrate or illustrate something in the sermon this morning. In the manufacturing industry, I learned that measuring equipment must regularly be calibrated. So I worked for an American company in Kempton Park, and uh, we, we manufactured components that we exported back to the U.S. because it's a lot cheaper to manufacture in South Africa because of the weak rand and so on, so on, so on. So we used to make hundreds of these components, uh, pack them into crates, and they'd be shipped off. And we'd wait two or three months, and then we were hoping to be paid in the company, and then the company in the U.S. would say, sorry, they all scrap. Because the dimensions were outside of the tolerances that were prescribed. And so we had, in those days, I remember, needed to uh, uh, put a laboratory into the factory to calibrate the measuring equipment to international standards. So that when we measured something in South Africa and they measured something in the U.S., it would be the same. And, and, and I think there's a huge lesson there. Uh, measuring equipment must regularly be calibrated, doing so to ensure microscopic measuring accuracy in the machining process. So calibration, I'm repeating myself, uh, of, of all measuring equipment takes place using an international standard. Now, when I was back in industry, it used to be called the SOBS 0157. I think these days they use the ISO 9000 or something. I, can't, I don't know. I'm not in touch with those things anymore. But an international standard. And the reason you need an international standard is that when you are measuring a component in Alaska with the temperatures of freezing cold, and you're measuring something in the Kalahari where it's 40 degrees centigrade, it must be the same. Now, my point is this. The sole rule to regulate the conscience of the Christian is God's written word. There's no, no other standard. There's no other standard. Our consciences need regular calibration to the God-given standard of Scripture. So what we did back in the company I worked in every single Friday... All the measuring equipment had to pass through the laboratory to be recalibrated because in the working of the instrument, it would drift. Recalibration, recalibration, it never stops. It doesn't end. That will lead to and maintain and nurture a desire to act honorably and honestly in all things. Can you see now why this author is asking the Hebrews, pray for us, lest we begin to think we don't need constant and repeated calibration of consciences from the Word of God. You know what irritated me, if I may confess something, before I was in the ministry? Is when I was sitting in the church and I watched leaders who didn't think they need to listen to the sermon. 
Oh, wandering around the place, go and visit people. I say, we all need God's word. A leader doesn't stop needing God's word. You'll need God's word. You'll need to be recalibrating until the very dying day. And so is the prayer, yes, in, in a context where we ourselves have a sinful nature still being uh, uh, perfected and conformed to the likeness of Christ. There are voices out there, there are ideas out there, there are ideologies, there are programs, there are temptations. There are shortcuts on offer in ministry. They seem attractive and plausible and reasonable. But they deviate from God's Word. Pray that leaders, elders, deacons, ministry leaders, denominational leaders would not lose confidence in the Scriptures. It's the issue we're fighting in the Baptist Union at the moment. Got to hold to the Scriptures. Pray that the leaders would have hearts and minds willing to submit to the Word of God. Oh, my iPad jammed. Okay. Uh, pray that we have... This kind of sums this point up. Pray that we have and maintain and grow having good consciences. Why? Knowing truth from error, good from evil, right from wrong, wisdom from foolishness, trust in self from trust in God, pragmatism from obedience. I want to urge Central Baptist Church, please pray for leaders, pray for us. We need regularly calibrated compasses. My third point, and it'll be a quick one, it's the second uh, request here. I've called it, warriors in the trenches often need divine intervention. Have a look at verse 19. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, that is pray for us, in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Now what's going on here? Well, we don't know. The situation of the author is we don't know who he is, we don't know what's going on with him, uh, but we do know that he asked for prayer that the circumstances outside of his control to change. Clearly, there was something, things, circumstances that prevented him from returning to them. And so in his mind, he knew that there's nothing he could do, but, but he does know that Nothing is impossible with God. So he asks for prayer. His request shows that he understands that God is bigger than any circumstance we face and is bigger than any obstacle that can emerge. And so he prays. He asks for prayer. Now, just a comment here. Prayer is not a polite gesture of support. I'm convicted of this, um, especially these days where we pass around a lot of prayer requests on, on the cell phone. It's very easy to pop up an emoji. But do we pray? We must pray. It's not a polite, a polite gesture. It's a means of laying hold of God's power. There are many situations that are outside and beyond the control of pastors. Some of them are small or perhaps of little consequence, but there are some big ones. And just to illustrate, I want to give you one or two. I know our service has gone on long today, but just uh, uh, two, three minutes and I'll be done. Let me give an example. 
We've been involved with the church uh, for some years now, uh, out toward beyond Hammanskral as a church, and, and the church has been established, it's been planted. Uh, but 95 to maybe even 99% of the people in that congregation don't work. The resources of that church is outside of the control of that local pastor. So there, there's an example that pray for us. We pray for him that, that there would be God's intervention, God laying it on the heart of individual men and women to be generous to support the work. Do you understand that? It's outside of their control. I think with many people who go out onto the mission field as well, it's outside of their control. But we can pray for us. Pray for us. God, you intervene. I've wondered about this COVID thing. I mean, this is out of our control, isn't it? There's nothing we can do. Who, who would have thought we'd still be sitting with 50 people after nearly two years? But man, shouldn't we be praying that God would change the situation, intervention of God in circumstances that would enable us leaders and, and members even to do the work we're supposed to do uh, in shepherding the flock. The others on my list, I'll leave them for today. Let me just conclude. I do want to emphasize that in spite of the message having a focus on leaders, it's true of all of us. You're all in the trenches. If you're a believer, you're in the trenches and you're fighting a war. Each of us is vulnerable, we're needy, we stand in need of constant grace. And just a, a, an illustration from the Old Testament. Uh, remember Moses in Genesis 17, and Israel was uh, having war, a battle against the people known as the Amalekites. And the Scriptures tell us in verse 12 that Moses' hands grew weary. So we... The story is that when Moses held up his hands, Israel was winning. But when his hands were lowered, Amalek was winning. So he needed help. That's the point I'm trying to make. And so what happens is Aaron and Ur, they hold up his hands. And then we get to the end of the story, verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people with the sword. They won. So the point is we do need to help each other, of course, as best we can. But of far greater value is the help of God. And so really just in summary, pray for leaders. Pray for us. We need calibrated compasses. Pray for us. We need divine intervention. And Lord, to that end, not just to close in prayer because it's what we do, but Lord, acknowledging that we stand as those who apart from your intervention and your enabling will produce no good fruit that will last into eternity. And so, Lord, do pour your Spirit out among us. Enable us in ways, Lord, beyond our own capacity, we pray, that your purposes continue to unfold, and, Lord, you be glorified as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Peter.